things to add to your faith during this holiday season. Uh, one of my like secret loves, and we've done this before, is to be a little countercultural in times like this to maybe push back on next week's consumerism. You can tell I'm really excited about that one. Um, this week, to push back on some of the uh, cultural norms that surround the holiday season. Now, I'm really excited for this one. It's about boundaries. Thank you very much. We've got one. Um, let me read you our passage, Galatians 6, 1 through 9. Listen to the boundaries that Paul begins to call the people of God to establish. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted." Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Verse 6, nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all the good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. Paul is introducing a new culture to a people who are living in a culture right now under the pressure of performing different things or honoring certain liturgy or being a part of different components of orthodoxy when it comes to Judaism. And he is going to them and he is, as you know, if you're familiar with the book of Galatians, it was, it was written actually during Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council. Let me, no, I'll just read you the first part. Guys, I know you don't have this but uh, Acts 15 was when Paul was writing the book of Galatians and he is writing to a group of people who are trying to live by the spirit in a culture that is asking them to do different things contrary to that, okay? Uh, Acts 15, let me just, I'll give you the first couple verses. It'll set some of the context. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea be, uh, arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way to Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles, too, were being converted. You, you hear there, so what's happening is this. The Jews are coming and they're saying, it's great that you know Jesus and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, but you still need to be circumcised. Paul comes in the book of Galatians and he rebukes all of that. He challenges all of that. And then at the very end, he says, if you live by the Spirit, you won't be subject to the flesh. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And then he says, these are, this is the culture in which these things will Thrive, And then he opens up Galatians 6, 1 through 9, and it is Paul establishing the boundaries for that culture. 
application for us is we have a culture in our home. We're about to invite people into our home that may challenge, may break, or may attempt to change that culture. How do we approach it? How do we handle it? How do we establish boundaries in our life so that we can thrive in the spirit-filled life that God has called us to with the pressures of the day still weighing down on us? My, my son, I, this is crazy. Kid's, kid's phenomenal at jiu-jitsu, right? He is, uh, he's kind of a little prodigy. Just won a gold medal at Battlegrounds in Houston. Um, he is thriving in the sport. And then we go to Mexico and he hangs out with three kids from England the entire time and he comes back wanting to play tennis. I'm like, what? Like, dad, I want to learn how to play tennis. They played like one time for five minutes and all of a sudden this kid's got an accent and he wants to play tennis. So we go to five below and we, yes, thank God for five below, right? Parents, if you haven't experienced the wonder of five below, that is, that is birthday, everything, shopping, all wrapped in this beautiful place. Uh, bought these $5 tennis rackets and these tennis balls that don't bounce, right? And I take him to the tennis court. We spend two hours at the tennis court and we may have played five minutes. Two hours. Let me, in fact, you got, you got the video, Jan? I want to show you. Look at this. This is a video of it. This can't be real. <laughs> this is like try 20 to just make contact. <laughs> ah! He finally touched it! <laughs> We're watching. I believe in you. I'm listening. <laughs> no, I really am. I think. No, I'm not. Watch this. Yo! Hey! Just striving for contact. That's it. Just a little contact. You believe in me, Dad? I'm not that bad. Promise. I know what I'm doing here. I got friends in England. <laughs> I know, I know what I'm doing. So we're, we're playing this and he, he finally, and I mean, that was like, that was a glimpse of like the entire time, right? 35 swings, one gets over the net. And so uh, he finally says, all right, dad, let's play a game. I said, okay. I said, this, this is the line here. This is the line here. He's like, okay. He just drops, finally, boom, rips one, bounces it off the back fence. And he goes, one point. I said, no. I said, look, it was, I mean, it was out, son. He's like, no, 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 I, I don't want to play with the lines. I don't want to play with the lines. I just want to play. If I hit it over, I get a point. And if you hit it over, you get a point. And I want to be the one to pitch every time. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, yeah. And so he's, he's standing, just bounding, you know, 30 times later, wham, he rips with two points. I'm just running, chasing balls. And I, I'm just trying to be the dad. I'm just trying to support him and, you know, fuel his love for England and tennis now, right? So we, we get done with all of this and we're walking out. I'm like, buddy, it's time to go. And he said, okay. He said, dad, I beat you in tennis today. I said, you did not beat me. Listen, there, there's one thing I don't do and I don't let my son win. That doesn't mean I crush him at everything. 
But it does mean that I make him give his very best effort. Like he's, I'm not just gonna lay down every time for him. I'm gonna teach him to work hard for it, right? So I was like, nah, this time around, bud, you didn't get me. You didn't get me. He's like, dad, I scored all the points. And I said, son, we had no boundaries. There were no lines. Like you just, that's not how the game is played. And he was like, well, I won, I won, I won. I said, there is no victory if there's no boundaries. Listen, there is, there's no victory in your life if you're unwilling to establish boundaries because what will invariably happen is this. If you have no boundaries, the enemy will find a foothold. He'll find a foothold in the place that you're willing to relax about. He'll find a foothold in the place that you're willing to turn your eyes to. He'll find a foothold somewhere and it is boundaries that keep us from falling to a place where the devil wants us to go. If you have no victory, if you have no boundaries, you won't experience victory. So Paul introduces these three spaces of boundary. Before he does, uh, Dr. Henry Cloud, who is a, an author that I love, he's a clinical psychologist, he's a doctor, he's, he's gone to seminary, he's a, just a devout believer, great theologian. He's the king of boundaries. He's written Boundaries for Marriage, Boundaries for Leadership, the book Boundaries. He's a boundaries fanatic. And his whole premise is based on this. He said, boundaries, uh, you have to understand this. You in life will get one of two things. You will get what you create or what you allow. When it comes to all of life, you are either going to get what you create or what you allow. If you fail to create boundaries, you're going to receive what you allow in. If you create boundaries, you will be able to stop what is not allowed in your life. Paul, when he's introducing boundaries, the first boundary that he introduces is what I've called the boundary of restoration. There's a boundary when it comes to restoring someone to fellowship in your home. There's a boundary when it comes to reestablishing a relationship with somebody in your life who has broken, betrayed, or drifted from the values of that relationship. Listen to Paul, Galatians 6 verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. He says later on in verse 3, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Paul continues this theme throughout other books. He says, listen, restore and guard yourself. Restore and guard yourself. Make the effort, do what you can do, but guard yourself in the process. Listen to me in the book of Romans, Romans 15.1. We'll be there again in January. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Again, he says, we who are strong, we should bear with those who are, feel, who are failing. We should step in and be a light and an encouragement for them. And then a chapter later, Romans 16, 17 through 18, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Again to Timothy, he says in 2 Timothy 2, 25 through 26, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that they will grant 
them, that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who's taken them captive to do as well. So Paul's literally saying, hey, opponents to the gospel, we should gently instruct them. We should pray that that gentle instruction turns to repentance and they are restored to fellowship and they are brought back in. His very next words, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, but mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, playing church with no substance, showing up with nothing here, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and what does he say to do? Have nothing to do with such people. Paul continues this over and over. Restore and work for restoration, but protect yourself in the process. In other words, my restoration of you can't come at the cost of me. My willingness to restore you into fellowship, into relationship with me, into relationship with my household, into relationship with my family, into relationship with my children, my longing and desire to restore you can't come at the cost of me. I can't be your designated driver if I start getting tempted to party again. I can't show up to witness, to minister, to rescue you and be the good Christian friend that's the designated driver every time if all of a sudden within me I start sensing, what did he say? Restore them, but watch out or you will be tempted as well. I can't be that for you if it's gonna drag me down with you. Ladies, you can't do the girls' nights where you dress up in your most scandalous outfit and you go out to the bar for happy hour and then you go out afterwards and have appetizers and you invite the attention of men without rejecting it when you and your friends are married. But they're my only friends. It's the only break I get. I need time out from being mommy all the time. If your friends are dragging you down that path of temptation, you have to set a boundary. Fellas, you can't go to the deer camp. You thought I was only going to go after the women. You're like, yeah, I really like this guy. Listen, you cannot go to the deer camp to witness and minister to your lost friends if you sit around the bonfire all night and listen to them talk about cheating on their wives, acting a fool, drinking too much, and all of a sudden it starts causing your mind to wonder. I can only restore you to the place where it doesn't cost me. I can only be that level of, I can't be your friend if being your friend means all I listen to is your gossip, your slander, your whining, your complaining, you talking poorly about your spouse. I can't be your friend anymore. Because what it does is it starts making me subconsciously treat my spouse differently. 
talk to my kids differently, act differently within the borders of my home because I failed to put a boundary in place. What does Paul say? Bad company corrupts good character. Yes, Tina. In other words, it's going to drag you down before you lift it up. So our responsibility in it is to be restoration. But the boundary to that restoration is when it starts costing me my sanctification. So I'll be restoration to you and I'll be revival to you and I'll be new life to you, but my restoration of you can't come at the cost of my sanctification. My, my dad, before he died, he, uh, he passed away and I remember when he died, my uncle called me and he asked me to go to my dad's trailer and, and clean it out and, and he said, whatever's in there is yours. Uh, if you don't want it, uh, no telling what's gonna happen to it. So I went to my dad's trailer and when I got there, he had this old chair that was, that was sitting there. I can, I can see it like it was yesterday. You walk through the doors, you turn right here and there's this old chair sitting there and on the old chair, there's a Bible on one side and a bottle of whiskey on the other. I don't know how else to tell my dad's story outside of that. That, that was my dad, a man who had a Beautiful heart, incredibly fun. If you think I'm funny, you should have met my dad. Just a wild man who was plagued with the addictions of alcohol, who was constantly fighting this battle. So I see his chair there and I walk over to his chair and I just, I started to sit down in his chair. When I sat down in his chair, there was this end table right there by the side. And when I looked to the side, I saw these were the only pictures visible in his place. These pictures are, uh, that's my dad, that's me, and that's my daughter Zion. And this was a Christmas. These are, this is the last time I saw my dad before he died, right? And these pictures are just sitting there in full view. And again, like I said, the only things that were visible. But let me tell you about this night. The night before, when we were talking about going to see my dad, we were in town for Christmas, just had Zion. Zion was this little girl. And I, I was going back and forth about, this is the first time and only time my dad ever met one of my children. And so I'm going back and forth about this. Do I, do I, do I go visit my dad? So I finally said, okay, dad, I'm gonna come visit you and I'm gonna bring my daughter with me. And then the night before, he called me drunk. Blabbering along on the phone. And I was so mad. I mean, I was boiling mad. I was so frustrated. I told Anna, I said, he's not meeting my daughter. Nope, not happening. All of these feelings flooded back into my life where I remember what it felt like. I thought, I'm not gonna put my kid in that situation now. You think I'm gonna bring my child in? I am not doing that at all. And to your credit, you are such a wonderful voice in my frustration, right? I'm, I'm the angry one, she's the fun, free spirit. She said, babe, I just want you to think about this. Can't, I can't believe you said this. You said you may regret that decision later on. So here's what I did. I changed everything. I changed the time of day. 
I changed the location to a mutual location. I made crystal clear if there was al- if I smelled alcohol at all, his mom was the one bringing him, that if I smell alcohol at all, I'll turn around and walk out of that house. It'll be at this time. It will go to this time. Here's what we will do. Here's how it will happen. And I will, I will let him hold my daughter if I feel led. I will let him interact with my daughter. But this is how it's going to go. And now I look at this and I think of how beautiful of a memory this was for him that he kept it on display the entire time and how beautiful of a memory it is for me that I can think back on this and think, wow, I get to keep, this is mine now. This is on display in my house now. And it's a wonderful memory that could have been a disaster without boundaries. It is as beautiful as this is. It could have never happened or been worse had we not been willing to put boundaries in place. And this is what drives me crazy. For some, you you are going to invite people into your home during this holiday season. And you know that when they come into your home, they disrupt the culture of your home. They parent your kids or talk to your kids in a way that you don't talk to your children. So now you have your children questioning you and wondering if they can trust you because you let these people come into the house and talk to them in a different way. So now that tension's there. And then you're frustrated, and so you take it out on your spouse, and you and your spouse are arguing, you and your kids are at odds, you're frustrated every time you walk into the living room and they're there, and you're under this pressure that that is what you have to do. You have to relieve the pressure and recognize their restoration cannot come at the cost of your sanctification. (laughs) Boundaries have to be put in place. And here is what boundaries do. Boundaries create this. And this is not easy. This was really hard. You know how hard it is to tell someone if you smell alcohol and your dad, you're gonna leave and they're never gonna see your child? It's not easy. But it's not meant to be easy. Because if all you do is allow it and take the easy road, you're gonna wind up with mess after mess after mess. But when you establish boundaries, you get to keep these memories. This memory is a memento of boundaries. So the first thing that Paul says, gently restore, but guard yourself. You have to watch yourself. You have to protect yourself. And then he continues on, uh, oof, this is a good one. It's a good one. Boundary and emotions. Second one is boundary in emotions. Galatians 6 verse 2, he says, I want you to circle a couple words if you have your Bible, um, and if not, make, make a note of them on the notes app. Galatians 6 2, carry each other's burdens. Circle that word. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, in, in perfect Paul fashion, carry each other's burdens, right? Jump to verses 4 through 5. Each one of you should test your own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. Verse five, for each one should carry their own load. So Paul says, in the same breath, carry each other's burdens, carry your own load. If you look at the Greek wording, this is really fascinating. The word for burdens means weight. 
It is a word talking about emotional weight. He is saying, or, or physical weight, or any sort of weight that somebody is carrying. So Paul is saying, carry the weight. The word that he uses for load is a Greek word meaning emotions. In other words, Paul is saying this, carry the weight, manage your own emotions. Help carry the weight, the burden, the stress, the, the hurt. Help carry that, but at the same time, the person that you're carrying has an obligation to manage their emotions. In other words, when we go from me helping carry your burdens with you to you dumping your burdens on me, we are no longer in a place where I can serve you. We are no longer in a place where I can help you because you're making no effort to manage them. You're just looking for someone else to carry them. Yeah. You're looking for someone else to, to dump them on. Listen, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 10. This is Paul again, and ooh, th this one is good. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is, this is one Greek word, idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we work night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this. Not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. I love what Paul just said. He said, in other words, look, I could have asked you and you would have been obligated, but instead I chose to serve you and live as a model for you to show you how it should be done. Verse 10, he says, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. What's Paul's rule? The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Idle and disruptive. It's the Greek word ataktos, A-T-O-K-T-O-S. It's a military term that means disorderly conduct or stepping out of rank, okay? And it has to do with both emotion and action. In other words, he's saying if they are disorderly in their emotions and they step out of rank with their actions, their problem is no longer your burden. Hear me especially during this season. There is a massive difference in hard times and hard-headed. There is a massive difference in hard times and hard-headed. I remember Christmas Eve years and years and years ago. I think I've told you the story before. <clears throat> I was working uh, as a pastor on staff at the Ark in Conroe, and we were having all of these Christmas Eve services, and I was standing on the curb, and I was watching the traffic flow, I was welcoming new guests, and I was just kind of, everything was happening right there, and this man comes walking up, he's a man without a home, and, and he looked rough, you could tell he'd been at hard times, and he walked up, and he says to me, he says, I'm looking for a pastor, and I said, you lucked out. <laughs> Here I am. I said, I'm, I'm a pastor. And he said, okay. He said, well, I need you to give me money now. Right? I'm like, okay. Uh, well, and look, so um, 
I told him, I said, hey, look, we'd love to consider helping you financially, but we don't do that during worship experiences for a very specific reason. It's a policy that I created. We used to do the opposite. We used to have gas cards and like food vouchers on hand inside of the lobby. And what happened was a bunch of people started showing up to get their gas cards and food vouchers every time we opened the door for church and then leaving. And they would, it just became a real kind of mess. We said, hey, look, outside of worship experience, we will help you financially. We'll take into consideration your needs. We always give food and clothing to anyone who needs it, but we will also consider helping you financially. He said, you call yourself a pastor. I was like, I may have to call myself a gangster here in a minute, right? <laughs> he, said, he literally said, he said, you call yourself a pastor and you call this place a church. I said, yeah. He took two fingers and he put them in the center of my chest and he said, then you need to give me money now and pushed me back a little bit. I said, it was just, as, this was the, the flesh side of me. I, I said, if you ever want to be able to count to 10 again, you better never put those two fingers on me. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. You know, you're not making it to 10. I'll tear them off if you put those fingers. And at this point, a bunch of volunteers came over and kind of, they, they separated him. He was really, really mad. I was like, man, you know, I, it, it's, it's not, and, and what had happened, and then I'll tell you, you'll love this, um, a officer that I'm really close with, big, burly guy, strong guy. They had been radioed in. Some, some guy just pushed Luke in the parking lot. And I mean, he comes walking out. You could see the steam coming off his head. And he says, where's the man that assaulted my pastor? <laughs> I was like, Merry Christmas, he's right there. He's right, oh look, he's running, there he goes. He's right, like that's, that's the one, right? But what had happened was we quickly went from a place where he was asking someone to help carry his burden to dumping the burden on somebody else. It's your problem. Hear me, I, I am not saying that we just reject everyone with emotion, right? That's, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is there is a massive difference because sometimes the need is emotion, right? Some people experience loss, they experience hurt, they experience difficulty, and they're emotionally just trying to walk through it. And they need our love, they need our grace, they need our support, but there is a huge difference in carrying someone's emotional burden with them and them dumping the emotional burden on you as your problem. I think y'all call that gaslighting, right? That is taking my problems and dumping them on. It shows up in phrases like this. It's just the way I am. I was raised that way. If you don't like it, that's your problem. Right? And so we, we get in this space again where we, we feel like because we are people of faith that we become the punching bag for everyone and everything. And I'm saying, I will, I will lock arms with you and I will carry burdens with you and we'll both grab a hold and we'll carry it. But the moment you drop that and tell me to carry it and tell me where it goes and point me in the right direction is the moment where we can't work together in this anymore. It's what Paul is saying. Listen to Jesus as he confronts the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Here's what he says they do. He said they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. 
as he's condemning them, he said, all they do is take all of their problems and dump them on your shoulders and tell you to figure it out. And they're not willing to carry with you. Paul says, carry the burden, manage your emotions, and have the boundary in place. Know what that looks like. Know how to walk through that. And some of it just takes discernment in the spirit. Sometimes you're going to be carrying burdens with people and you're going to be carrying burdens and then all of a sudden you're going to recognize you care more about it than they do. I had a wonderful marriage counselor in Maggie, wherever Maggie told me some of the best counseling advice that I've ever heard. You will never heal or counsel a marriage further than what they're willing to go themselves. Said, hey, if they're not willing to do the work, there's not a lot we can do. If they're not willing to carry, then we can't carry it for them. Talk about being in ministry. Goodness, there, I would love to save you for you. I talk to you. I hear your stories. I'm like, man, do you know what the power of the Holy Spirit could do for you? Do you know what freedom could do for you? Do you know what prayer could do for your marriage? Do you know what some grace would do for your relationship with your kids? But I can't do it for you. It is up to us to carry the burden together and you to carry your own load. Last boundary Paul comes to is the boundary of sowing and reaping. So interesting, right? Starts with restoration, then he goes to emotion, and now he ends with you're gonna get what you put into it. Galatians 6, seven through nine. He says, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. <clears throat> A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we don't give up. And then I'll go into verse 10. Therefore, as we have every opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of faith. Sowing and reaping is a universal principle in scripture. You can see it come up in the Proverbs 22, verse eight. Those who plant injustice will harvest disaster and their reign of terror will come to an end. Job talks about it in Job 4, eight. My experience shows that those who plant trouble and cultivate evil will harvest the same. Hosea, in prophesying to the children of Israel in their rebellion, brings it up. He said, the Lord spoke to him, plant good seeds of righteousness and you will harvest a crop of love. Plow up the hard ground of your hearts, for now is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and shower righteousness upon you. But you have cultivated wickedness and are harvesting a thriving crop of sins. You've eaten the fruit of lies, trusting in your military might, believing that great armies could make you a nation. At the end of the day, sowing and reaping is going to reveal the fruit of our life. I, I have permission to call him an idiot, so I'm, I'm gonna call him an idiot. My neighbor, who he's an idiot, he's, he's, I love him. He's actually not my neighbor anymore, he, he moved. You know, we didn't celebrate too much, just you know, streams, balloons, you know, bounce houses, everything else. But, um, <laughs> No, I, he and I have a great relationship. And he got slick one year. He, is, he, he wanted to keep mowing his yard in the winter. Says, no man but maybe Heath Holloway. I know Heath loves to mow his yard. He's like, I, I just, man, I got, I, I got, I'm sort of missing mowing my yard in the winter. So uh, he went out and he planted a winter rye. 
and this, he overplanted. If you Google, this is really fun, Google overplanting winter rye, I send him the link every now and then. I'm like, hey, remember this moment? And I send him the Google search overplanting winter rye. Uh, here's what happens. It kills all the St. Augustine. It, it goes down, it chokes it out, it disrupts the rest time, and it kills off the entire yard. And winter rye does not flourish in the summer. So he plants all this winter rye, he mows it for about two months, weather changes, all of his sod dies, all of the, the winter rye dies. And he used to have the best looking yard in our neighborhood. Now it looks like a goat ranch. And I mean, I remember we were pull, I was pulling up one day, being a good neighbor, you know, and I saw him, he had pallets of sod. He was resodding his entire yard. I hollered at him. I said, hey, yard looks good. <laughs> You're really killing it, man. He was like, shut up, shut up. Can't stand it. And I asked him, I said, what, what happened? He said, I planted too much of the wrong seed. Planted too much of the wrong seed. Now it's burned up. Now it's choked out. And neither one of them made it. At the end of the day, sowing and reaping is the boundary of life that we live in. And we have to understand, if I'm sowing it, I will reap it and see the harvest. And that could be sowing and reaping great things or sowing and reaping the wrong seed and sitting in here today saying, where do I go from here? The beautiful thing about our faith is this, Jesus is the gardener. John chapter 15, Jesus is the gardener. He says, I am the father, the father is the gardener and he is the vine and those who come to the vine, they will harvest a seed of good fruit. We have a gardener that will harvest. If you will choose to sow the right seeds today, he will choose to harvest those seeds in your life. So you can replant, you can restructure and you can rebuild, but you have to understand the boundary of sowing and reaping. There is a boundary to restoration. I can only restore you to the level where it doesn't cost me. There's a boundary to emotions. We can carry them together, but you can't just dump them on me. There's a boundary to sowing and reaping. I can sow it here and reap it here, or I can sow it here and I'll reap it here. What are the seeds that you're sowing?